Okay, today uh, we're going to talk about uh, the phenomenon of unionism at the end of the Byzantine Empire. And this is, there were four unions done uh, by the emperors at, towards the end of the Byzantine Empire. And this phenomenon, I guess, in some ways, is, it's not a very inspiring period of Orthodox Church history. But in other ways it is, because ultimately the Church rejected unionism at the cost of its own existence as, as a, let's say, a free country. So the Byzantine Empire ceased to exist because the logic, uh, political logic of union uh, in, in exchange for survival was rejected by the majority of the population of the church. And so I want to just go through the, the, the four periods of union, what kind of motivated them, what happened. And I guess, uh, you know, it's sort of typical especially at the end, you know, where the Turks are closing in and ultimately the city fell, for Western observers and modern historians to talk about the fanaticism of the Orthodox, that they, you know, were so fanatical they couldn't even see that their survival depended on, you know, accepting church union. And one that's one way to look at it is that, you know, gee, these people must not have been very smart if they didn't realize that they were going to be taken over by the Turks, but when we look at the, at the time, they certainly did realize, you know, it was, it was obvious to them that they were going to be taken over by the Turks, just as it was obvious to the early Christians under the uh, pagan Roman emperors that, you know, if they didn't sacrifice to pagan gods, that they were going to be killed, as, as they were. And so, when we look at the destruction of the Byzantine Empire and the failure of the Byzantine Church to accept the church unions negotiated by these emperors, to think of it not in terms of what you know would have uh, led to the continuation of the Byzantine Empire, but in terms of the churches. I mean, you know, the, the, when we think of empires, we're thinking in a political sense, but the church does not think in a political sense, but in a spiritual sense. And, and that spiritual vision of the church is what led to the martyrdoms uh, in the early church. And so at the end of the Byzantine Empire, it's that same spirit of willingness to sacrifice life in this world for the uh, integrity of the kingdom of God is what motivated the people in the church to pretty continuously reject the efforts of their emperors to bring about a union with Rome. Okay, I want to kind of hit them in order. The first I'd like to talk about is Michael VIII, Paleologus. He uh, became emperor at the time when the uh, well, there had been earlier the uh, Fourth Crusade, which had taken over Constantinople by the Latin Crusaders, and the Byzantine Empire became divided into a number of smaller countries. The sort of most prominent was the Empire of Nicaea, of which Michael Paleologus was part. Gradually, the Empire of Nicaea was taking back the Byzantine land from the Latins, and ultimately they managed to recapture the city of Constantinople in, I think, 1261. By doing that, however, they made themselves a target for Western uh, efforts to recapture the city. The city was important as a commercial port for the uh, Western trade, and the Western princes was a very wealthy city, wanted to control Constantinople. So we had, so that problem that Michael now felt himself uh, exposed to potential attack. They had been holding off the Turks okay, but now they expo felt exposed to an attack from the West, uh, another crusade to try to recapture the city. And he uh, 
at first had a, an advantage in that it was this was during the time of the conflict between the Holy Roman German Empire, uh, was called the Holy Roman Empire, and the and the papacy. And in this conflict, Michael established a kind of alliance with the papacy against one of the uh, sons of the German emperor named Manfred, who was the king of Sicily and therefore the person in the West most likely to recapture Constantinople or invade the Byzantine Empire. But because Manfred was an, a rival of the Pope, the emperor had a fairly easy time using the Pope against Manfred. This, however, changed in 1266 uh, when Manfred was killed by the brother of the King of France who was acting on behalf of the Pope to get rid of the Germans and to establish papal control in Italy, and this was Charles of Anjou. Now the problem was once someone who was an ally of the Pope was King of Sicily, there was no longer a rivalry to hold him back, and in fact he began preparing giant fleet and to go and uh, capture Constantinople. In this extremity, Michael was uh, trying to, at first he was uh, sort of bargaining with the King, King Louis that he would you know, help Louis with crusades and that worked for a while. Then Louis died and the, the Pope, next Pope was insisting, well, either, either you submit to my supremacy or you're going to be attacked. We're, you know, I'm going to have, let Charles attack you because he wants to go attack you. So Michael decided that, well, the way to do this was just he was going to go have a church union. So he sent his emissaries to the West to a council of Lyon in 1274, and the officials of the, of the Byzantine Empire proclaimed a church union, accepted the uh, supremacy of the Pope and everything else, and just... Uh, that, and, and that was it. Now the thing, interesting thing is that the church did not accept that, but that the emperor did. And Michael kind of got what he wanted in that that caused the Pope to, to tell Charles of Anjou, okay, you have to hold off your attack because now they, they're in church union. But the, 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 uh, but the church, because the church rejected it and also uh, all of the Greek states that were not under his control were also, uh, the, well, the Bulgarians and Serbians were rejecting it. Michael uh, felt compelled to enforce the Union by force, and so he began a series of persecutions, arresting and killing people who opposed the Union, who were important, and also attacking the monasteries. And so he was um, not just uh, someone who, for expedience, was implementing a church union, but as part of his, let's say, trying to gain control of all of the former Byzantine territories in the East, he was suppressing, trying to you know, suppress any orthodox dissent by violence. This led uh, to his being condemned at a council held in Thessaly by one of the rival uh, Byzantine states and also a lot of opposition even within his own family. In the end, it didn't do him any good really because the next pope who came along was a friend of Charles of Andrews and basically Charles wanted to attack so he said, well, go ahead and excommunicated Michael, even though he had signed this union, accepting everything with the Pope. In the, the end, Michael defeated the attack by organizing a, a rebellion in Sicily, which the fleet was burned, and that saved the day. But, but unfortunately, uh, you know, then he died the year after. He, uh, he never really renounced his policy, both of, of, the, of ex sort of putting expediency above the, the theology of the church, 
and also uh, his attempt to essentially persecute the church into accepting something which was against its theology. And it's, we should kind of remember that with, when we think of the Byzantine Empire, that in one way uh, was sort of an expression of the church on earth, but uh, on the other hand, the Byzantine Empire emperors themselves were not always uh, loyal to the church's teachings. I mean, I guess as anywhere, you have uh, temptations and sins. And, and so the emperors, uh, you know, in all these cases, none of them are particularly interested in what the church's theology is. They're interested primarily in their political objectives, which in this case was to hold off the Western attack. After Michael's death, and of course the, de- the defeat of Charles, there was a great reaction against his union, and, and Michael's son had a council where he ended the church union. And you have a long period where it's a kind of flowering of orthodoxy uh, and monasticism, and this is the period of Gregory Palamas, kind of in between uh, Michael and John V, where we have the Palamite councils, they have the development of Hesychast theology, the development of also the development of Byzantine humanism continues. And unfortunately, this is also where you have so kind of two opposite trends. One is the Hesychasts, or Palamite, let's say traditional monastic spirituality, versus a, a type of Thomism, uh, or scholasticism, developing among the, let's say, secular educated people. You had kind of a common, sometimes a Thomist could be a Palamite at the same, you know, that didn't necessarily, but these two trends that now when the uh, difficulties again begin, will the, the, the scholastic group tended to favor union in their, most of them were in conflict with, with uh, monastic theology and wanted to see a revival of interest in Aristotle. And so they, in, in fact, became very interested in Western scholasticism. And many of this group uh, became, ultimately became Roman Catholic or un, pro-unionist uh, people. The uh, Thomists, Byzantine Thomists or Byzantine scholastics. So this in between, I'm talking about this period in between when there was no union, there was a flowering of, of hesychasm and, and Gregory Palamas' theology, but also um, a, a flowering of interest in Aristotelianism and, and Western scholasticism. Now, John V was a child at the time of Gregory Palamas's friend, John Cantacuzinus, was the regent of John V. John V's mother was a Western prince princess who had married the previous emperor <clears throat> and John was there was a number of civil wars kind of during John's minority the last of which ultimately got him into power these civil wars greatly weakened Byzantine resistance to two expanding countries at this time one was the Turks were expanding up into the old Byzantine territories around Nicaea and the the Serbians were advancing down into the Mas- kind of what's ma- what would now be called Macedonia, kind of coming into European Byzantium. In this situation, John V, when he becomes emperor, the first thing he does is writes to the Pope and and uh, offers to to force the Byzantine Church to accept papal supremacy and and Roman Catholic doctrine in exchange for five ships and 1,500 men. So. This gives you an idea maybe of one thing, the, the straits they were, you know, they felt that 15, gee, 15, if I only have five ships and 1,500 men, my, you know, my problems would be solved, and I'll just, I'll just make sure that the church, you know, kind of do the same as Michael VIII did, and I'll just enforce the church to accept the, the Pope. Well, fortunately the Pope didn't take him up on that, but it, it gives you the idea that obviously uh, the church's theology is not 
foremost in his mind, because this is done like right after he gets into power. And then, um, then he was faced with the, the Turks who were coming over into, into Europe and had took over Adrianople in the area of Thrace, uh, what is now European Turkey, kind of surrounding Constantinople. He decides to go up to uh, Hungary and ask the king of Hungary for aid. But when he gets there, the king uh, not only wants him to submit to Rome, but you know, in exchange for aid, but says, well, but in fact, also you need to be rebaptized by Roman by the Roman Church. And so he doesn't agree to it and ends up getting imprisoned by the Bulgarians on his way back home. And and the uh, Italian count comes and rescues him uh, from the Bulgarians. And he gets back to Constantinople. And there's the discussion of union because things aren't looking very good. And John Cantacuzinus, who is now his, his who is the emperor before him, who's now a, kind of a leading monk and who's a great intellectual and, and the monastic figure, says, well, okay, we can talk about union, but let's have a church council. Let's have Rome take, you know, take part in a church council and we'll discuss these issues. But uh, the Pope, anyway, refuses to have any kind of council and says, well, if you want our aid, you'll just submit to the Pope. So the Emperor John uh, says, okay, well, that's guess we have to do. So meanwhile, the, the popes are living in France and Avignon. This is the period of the Avignon papacy. And he goes to France. He submits to the Pope personally. But the Byzantine church and even the, basically the Byzantine empire this time, nobody really goes with him to, to submit. So he's, it's a personal submission and it doesn't really do any good. He ends up being held in Venice for, for debts because he doesn't, you know, they were, they're poor and they didn't have, so Venice kind of loaned them the money in exchange for the Byzantines turning over territory to Venice, which the government back home didn't want to do. So he's, he's kind of stuck there for a while. Ultimately, he gets back and then ends up having civil war with his son. And the, meanwhile, the Ottomans are just taking over everything. And ultimately, he's reinstated by the, the Ottoman Empire as their vassal in, in Constantinople. So actually, it was kind of, the Serbians were backing one, the son, and, you know, the Ottomans backed him and won out and stuck him in. So, it, it, again, this kind of, you could see the sort of lack of any consideration for the theology of the church, but the second thing is, okay, whereas Michael VIII perhaps could feel that, yes, the Pope can probably hold Charles of Anjou back, the, there's not very much realism in thinking, well, if I just submit to the Pope over in France, you know, then I'll be rescued from the Turks because the Turks are the here and the Pope's over there. And in fact, you know, this is the problem of all these later union, all these later union efforts were done with the hope of getting support against the Turks. And the reason they all not only theologically failed, but simply practically failed was because the Popes had no influence with the Turks and very little uh, military might in the Eastern Empire, you know, in the East, in the East that they could use to help the, the uh, Constantinople, and very little ability at all. And then, and then there were, of course, Western countries, but the Western countries were all involved in their own ends, you know, fighting with each other. And so, the, so there was no. Uh, and then Venice and Ottoman and the Genoa were trading with the Ottomans, so naturally they didn't want to spoil that relationship either. Yes. I just uh, wondered if, if the Church ever tried to. Ecclesiastically discipline any of these emperors. Well, they rejected. Yes, I mean they rejected um, what they did. I mean, in the case of Michael, of course, they uh, yeah he well he was already excommunicated because he 
became emperor by murdering the he was the uh, he was the regent for a young emperor whom he he murdered after they took over Constantinople and so the patriarch excommunicated him he kind of arrested the patriarch and and then when he proclaimed the church union he put his own uh, patriarch John Beckus in but uh, the rest of the church did not accept them and so that's when he just used military uh, pressure to try to force them his son Manuel uh, the, the situation was very bad the Ottomans were, were closing in after John V and it looked uh, like it was going to be all over and his son Manuel just basically went and lived in the west uh, spent some time in Paris and London trying to get help but everybody was very impressed with him because he was very nice and well well educated person but the uh, West didn't really, he, he didn't actually attempt any kind of union. This was during the Great Schism in the West, so the popes were busy fighting each other. So he just tried appealing to all the kings to send some help, but nobody would really. But the person who came to his rescue, sort of unintentionally, we know him as Tamerlane, or Timur the Lame, uh, was a Mongol king from kind of Central Asia, got into a war with the Ottoman Empire, and came and made a sort of massive uh, victory over the Ottomans in uh, Ankara, now the capital of Turkey, and the Turks went from closing in to finish off the Byzantine Empire to suddenly being very afraid of the Mongols and hastening to make uh, treaties with all the Christian states around them, try to have a, a kind of place of refuge in Europe where they could hide from the Mongols, basically. So this victory rescued the Byzantines, but and Emmanuel came back home, but the the, the empire was was still very weak, and they weren't really able to uh, recapture any of their territories at this point, but they were they were no longer in, in, in actually the uh, John the fifth I should say after he came back from after he came back from from uh, I think he went to avignon he he became a vassal he essentially became a vassal of the Turkish uh, Sultan and had to not only pay tribute but you know go out on and fight battles with him against the Christians or anyone else. And so the interesting thing is that with the uh, the victory over the victory over the Ottomans by the by the Mongols that uh, caused the, the the Ottomans gave up their overlordship over the emperors and also the tribute the, the tribute ended. So we had a period when the Byzantine Empire kind of again was free. Manuel did not believe in you know he didn't he theologically didn't think it was right to try to pursue a union. His son, however, immediately did want he became into power. His son was John VIII. He felt that the West was going to be the only help. So he turned to the West by doing it, though he, he kind of made the Turks nervous again because they suddenly see the Byzantine Empire becoming friends with the West. So it didn't, and uh, it, there, were, there was no material aid coming from this, so it, it ultimately politically damaged Byzantium. But uh, we kind of know it sort of spiritually uh, because this is what produced the Council of Florence. The one thing this was this was the time the end the Great Schism ended due to the Council of Constance, so there was the conciliar movement in the West, and the the Orthodox had always said, well, let's have a church council to discuss our differences, and the popes had always said, no, you just need to obey me, you don't need a council. But well, under the influence of conciliarism, the West did agree to a council, and this became the Council of Florence, and this would have been fine, except that the council was taking place in Italy, the emperor gathered up a delegation of bishops, which basically didn't include people who were against the idea of church union, 
and just were sort of the, the pro-unionists as well as these scholastic, some of these scholastic scholars were brought along. They get to to Italy, and there's uh, all these discussions. And what we see is that you know the Roman Church would propose something, um, the filioque or the, or the the primacy of the Pope, the purgatory. When does the, uh, when does the consecration of the gifts take place in the liturgy? And the Orthodox bishops would all kind of answer with the typical our Orthodox answers. So you know, well, this is wrong because of da da da. Well, and perhaps sometimes suggesting some little compromise or something. And then the Pope would come back and say, well, no, uh, you have to accept that exactly this is it. You know, the Pope is the head of all the church. You, you know, whatever the doctor, this is the filioque, you have to accept our formula. And and so then the emperor would say, well, we need help from the West and uh, we can't go home until they had very little funds for, for food or anything. So they were they were there a long time without much supplies and they were kind of pressured by the circumstances and by the emperor that they needed to make an agree- reach an agreement with Rome so they could go home. And so finally, they just did. They just agreed to everything. And the, the theory on which they did so was the idea of economia. Is that is that uh, you can bend rules a bit for the sake of expediency. So they had answered the Catholic Church and said, well, these are all these things are wrong because of various reasons. But then... Well, they needed to have an agreement and they needed to go home, so they just agreed to whatever the, the uh, Catholic Church proposed, finally. Except for one, well, two people. One was a uh, Platonist philosopher and the other was the Metropolitan of Ephesus, whose name was Mark, and he refused. And when so the when he got home, not only was he deposed by the emperor from being Metropolitan, but he was thrown into prison for two years. So, on a kind of formal level, that the, the Orthodox Church, the emperor, and this group of bishops essentially submitted to the Catholic Church and just accepted all Roman Catholic teachings. But one of, again, as we saw earlier in the Arian controversy, the church theology does not come from, a, the authority is not a formal authority. So you can have a church council, but if the church council teaches heresy, well, then that council is over, overturned. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, an authority the same with emperors, the same with patriarchs, that ultimately their authority is dependent upon them maintaining the tradition of the church. If they fail to do that, then we reject them. And this, the Council of Florence was a great example of this because in a formal way, the only bishop who didn't sign is in, is in prison, deposed, but he's the person that we consider a saint, Mark of Ephesus. All these other people we consider as apostates and the council is not one of our ecumenical councils. It's just, I mean, there was emperor there, there were bishops there, but we just consider it as a heretical council. And the... Uh, yes, they consider it ecumenical. But from the Orthodox point of view, it's a heretical because it just abandoned the Orthodox faith. And what happens is the, the church, just the, the people in the church just simply avoided anything to do with the patriarch, the unionist patriarch that uh, John appointed. Also, this went to, because of this, some, the, some of the uh, bishops who were the most uh, active in supporting the Union ended up leaving and going back to Italy. And this was Bessarion, who became a cardinal, and Isidore, who was the Metropolitan of Kiev, went, just went back to Italy to become cardinals in the Catholic Church because they were essentially rejected by the people 
in their own country. Curiously, the the emperor's secretary was a scholastic uh, Thomist named George Scholarius, who went to the Council of Florence, he signs the council, comes home and decides that that was a mistake, as did many of the people who were forced to sign. They, a lot, most of them repudiated what they did. And he becomes a monk and the leader of the people who oppose Union in this last period under Constantine the Eleventh, and lived in his cell in a monastery. It was uh, rejected by the emperor's government, but when the city finally fell, George Scholarius became the patriarch of Constantinople because after the, after the fall of, there was no longer any incentive for, nobody, there wasn't an emperor there enforcing a union, so the the monk who had previously signed it, I mean, he wasn't a monk then, but he was a, a government official, now, it, you know, the patriarch of, of the church in, in his theology being that the, the union is wrong and that we, he was actually, um, well, Mark of Ephesus was a, was a Palamite. As I said, George Scholarius was a Thomist. The council, though, didn't cause any aid to come, so John didn't follow Michael's idea of enforcing it by force, or which, what he had earlier promised the Pope, actually, that he would do. He just kind of let it go, because they, they made the council, they got, they got home, and everybody rejected them, and the West didn't send any help, and the Turks were still in around them, so they just left it. But he remained Uniat to the end of his life. His brother, Constantine, was not, and he was ruling in what's the Peloponnesus, or southern Greece, and when his when his brother John died, Constantine had himself crowned emperor in Greece, not in Constantinople, because the patriarch of Constantinople was the one John had put in, who was a unionist. And when Constantine comes up to Constantinople, the, the unionist patriarch leaves and goes goes to Rome because he he's not supported by this new emperor. Now, the Orthodox bishops at this juncture, this is in 1451. Remember, Constantinople falls in 1453. So two years before the fall, the, the bishops propose that a new council be held in Constantinople. And the reason was that the Council of Florence was not accepted by the other Orthodox patriarchs. So what they want is a council where all of the Orthodox patriarchs will attend and which is not going to be controlled by the Romans, essentially, where they're not going to be forced into accepting it. So these bishops propose this. The Pope writes back that, no, we're not going to have any more councils. You're just going to accept the union that was already done in Florence. If you want any, expect any aid from us. The okay, this uh, and ultimately in 1452, with the Turks, it becomes obvious that the Turks are going to attack. Constantine finally agrees to enforce that he'll enforce the union, and uh, it's proclaimed in in. The, Church of the Holy Wisdom by the Emperor and Cardinal Isidore, who comes back from Italy to uh, to do this. But the Union is, again, it's, it's rejected by the majority of the population. And this is where the monk Gennadius, remember, who had signed Florence, is, was preaching against it. And this is where the Western people kind of see Gennadius as a crazy fanatic. Why does it, you know, just for the sake of survival, why don't you go along with it? But but they church very, this is where the statement, uh, better the turban of the, of the sultan than the tiara of the pope, because the realization that, okay, in an earthly sense, you know, we could be taken over by the, 
by the Muslims. I mean, the interesting thing is that none of these earlier efforts really made any, never dealt with the reality of Orthodox theology and how, you know, Western theology could adapt or, or repent, let's say, of, of these things. So this was, uh, beca- so because unionism was always a straight deal to abandon the Orthodox faith in return for uh, temporal protection, and, and that temporal protection obviously was not very much in evidence anyway, most people in the church, first off, they were loyal to the church and just said that no, that the theology of the church has to be preserved even if it means we're going to go under the Turks. And if the interesting thing is that when, when the final battle comes, the people defending Constantinople, there were 500 Greek soldiers, 500 Byzantine soldiers defending the city and 2,000 Western troops. And you could, and perhaps with those numbers, you can kind of understand why maybe the, the emperor felt, even though he was resisting unionism, at the, the last minute he, I think he implemented it five months before the city fell, was that, well, the, all my troops are from the west, pretty much, and the, so if anything is going to happen, it's going to be that. But the city fell anyway because Turks had all these heavy artillery that actually they were had gotten from westerners that supplied them with, and the. So he fell, and, and then George Scholarius became the patriarch, but of an Orthodox church which rejected the union. I just mentioned briefly. There's, of course, all of, of, of the books on Byzantine history and surveys of Orthodox theology all deal with this period. There's some particular books. Uh, one by Donald Nicole called "The Last Centuries of Byzantium" is very detailed on the political uh, events of the end of the last emperors. Uh, books by Stephen Runciman. Uh, Sicilian Vespers deals with the reign of Michael VIII, and then his book on the fall of Constantinople deals with this last section. He also has one called the Byzantine Theocracy and another on the Eastern Schism that tangentially deal with this. There's uh, the ca- on the Catholic side, there's someone named Joseph Gill who wrote the Council of Florence, and he wrote a book called The Personalities of the Council of Florence that again give a, a very detailed account of all of these things, but from a Catholic point of view. No, he's uh, what I believe Anglican, and but he is somewhat uh, sympathetic to the Orthodox and the Byzantine uh, world. His book uh, Eastern Schism, I think, though, which is his early an early work for him, comes pretty much from a Western point of view theologically. His later books seem to be more pro-Orthodox, and then the um, there's a book by Ivan uh, Ostromov called The History of the Council of Florence, published by Holy Transfiguration. That's the Orthodox approach to this. Okay.